Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, crossover day in the state legislature has come and gone. From new voting bills to repealing the state citizens' arrest law, WABE politics reporters Emma Hurt and Emil Moffitt give us the latest. But first, the head of the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says about 9% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Now, that's about 31 million Americans. In a press briefing yesterday, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky shared the agency's latest recommendations. When I say fully vaccinated... I mean people who are two weeks after their second dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines or two weeks after a single dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Fully vaccinated people can visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without wearing a mask or physical distancing. Visit with unvaccinated people from a single household who are at low risk of severe COVID-19 disease indoors without wearing masks or physical distancing, and refrain from quarantine and testing following a known COVID-19 exposure if the vaccinated person remains asymptomatic. Now, still, the CDC continues to call on fully vaccinated folks to continue to wear masks and follow social distancing measures in public. Dr. Lewinsky went on to say levels of COVID-19 transmission in the U.S. remain high. Meanwhile, the state of Georgia confirmed 43 new coronavirus deaths just yesterday, and that brings the total to 15,640 Georgians who have died due to the virus since last March. And more than 700 new cases were reported yesterday. Now, the Georgia Department of Public Health reports this number now stands at 829,077 coronavirus cases in total confirmed since March of last year. And as always, we get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. And finally, get ready to hear all sorts of sports cliches in the next minute from me. Two Georgia Tech basketball players are receiving top honors from the ACC. That means the Atlantic Coast Conference. The big fella, cliche number one, 6'9", Moses Wright is the ACC's Player of the Year from the AP, which is Associated Press. Wright, a forward who maybe should be playing center, that's just my opinion, is the third Yellow Jacket player to receive such an honor. He's an absolute outstanding player. Now, the last player to, re- to receive such an honor, I'm dating myself because I saw him play, Mark Price, back in 1985, one of the best shooters in the league. And Dennis Scott, no relation, by the Atlantic Coast sports writers in 1990, saw him play as well. And Tex Jose Alvarado was named ACC Defensive Player of the Year. Boy, I tell you, can't get past this dude, cliche number two. Now, Georgia Tech is 15-8 and eight this year and will begin conference tournament play later this week and my apologies to all you Duke and Tar Heel fans but I am rooting for Georgia Tech.
a conference championship win. And that means the Yellow Jackets can punch a ticket. Cliche number three to the NCAA tournament, also known as the Big Dance. Sports cliche number four. Coming up next, we talk about the Gold Dome and what's happening. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. As I mentioned just a moment ago, a key mark in this year's Georgia legislative session has officially come and gone. Crossover day. Now, lawmakers spend hours debating bills and other measures before the deadline. After a late evening of debate, will join me now to give us the latest on what happened. Our WABE politics reporters, Emil Moffitt and Emma Hurt. Welcome to both of you. I hope you got some sleep. Hey, Rose. Hey, we did <laughs> eventually. Emma, that was a slow. That was a slow <laughs> response. There, I'm feeling slow. I'm feeling I slow. I had it. the late shift. Emil uh, had the early shift. Now so. How does it happen? You're the you're the veteran. <laughs> we switch off. We switch off. <laughs> it was different last year. Oh, Emma, come on now. You gotta throw them elbows. You gotta come on, say, no, look, I'm the veteran. Uh, before we get into the ins and out of this uh, legislation day, crossover day, and all that, for our listeners that may not understand, what is the significance of crossover day? Either one of y'all can take that. You know, it's kind of an imaginary deadline because you can fudge it. But in theory, it is the last day that a bill has to pass one chamber to make it to the other chamber to fully become a law. So if you have a House bill, it has to pass the House Mm -hmm. by yesterday in order to have time to go through the Senate and become law. But of course, as I said, it's kind of fungible because lawmakers can resurrect bills that didn't make it and stick them in other bills that did. Mm. And so it helps, it helps, um, it's a deadline they impose on themselves to get their, to get stuff going, but it is not set in stone completely. Emil, let me ask you this. How often does it happen? What you just heard Emma say that sometimes they take a measure that didn't technically make it out of, of one chamber, but they want to tack it on to something else. And sometimes it can be just as odd to what bill they're trying to t- tack on another measure. How often does that uh, happen? It happens uh, not infrequently. We see it from time to time. Um, you know, sometimes, like you said, it can be uh, put put onto or included in a bill that doesn't have much to do with the first one, that, although they try to keep it uh, germane to the, the original bill. Uh, but sometimes that'll happen. And, you know, it really depends on the will of the, the leadership to, to be able to allow that type of thing. Uh, there certainly aren't many bills that, uh, that don't have the support of leadership that, that get snuck in there at the last minute, though. Well, let's now get into some of these measures that lawmakers spent hours debating on the floor. Of course, that massive overhaul on the state's election system. Uh, which one of you want to walk us through what, it, what exactly is being proposed right now? What made it? I guess the big headline is this is the Senate, um, the massive Senate package mm-hmm. of election law changes that passed yesterday, more than three hours of debate. It was pretty brutal partisan, um, pretty brutal partisan fighting over it. And, and that bill would eliminate no excuse absentee voting. And that's a really controversial idea, um, even among Republicans. And it's worth noting that Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan who presides over the Senate refused to preside over mm-hmm. that debate because he does not agree with that idea. It does a lot of other things too. It adds an identification requirement that does have broad Republican support for absentee voting, um, eliminates the use of discretionary mobile polling places, discretionary use of them. 
but again, it, it did pass on party lines, but it was it was tough. And, you know, beyond Jeff Duncan, some Republican senators in competitive districts here in Metro Atlanta skipped the vote, too. So, um, like I said, it did pass the Senate. Doesn't mean it's going to become law. And especially that I would say that because of the disagreement among Republicans on that issue. Emma, let me stay with you for a moment, because I understand that uh, House Speaker David Ralston has also expressed disapproval about this as well. Yeah, exactly. And thanks for bringing that up. I mean, again, it goes to the House. You need everyone on board to make a law. And Speaker Ralston has said he's not interested in the elimination of no excuse absentee voting, a policy that was implemented by Republicans. And absentee voting has been used by Republicans overwhelmingly up until this past year. And and the governor is also not such a fan of this. Hmm. So again, it passed. It's a big headline. It sounds scary, but I would just say to any everybody, you know, if if that's if that's something you care about, take a deep breath because it, it might not very well might not become law given this disagreement among Republicans. And Emil, I want to focus on obviously one of the counties that everyone pays attention to, which is Fulton County, which you've covered in the state's voting system for more than for more than a year now. Um, what effect could this have on a county like Fulton? It could have a drastic effect, um, especially because, you know, Fulton has more than 800,000 registered voters. It's the largest county in the state as far as, uh, you know, voters, uh, number of registered voters go. Um, Some of the measures that are in these uh, omnibus elections bills uh, almost directly target Fulton. Uh, Emma mentioned the mobile voting units. Mm -hmm. Fulton had two mobile voting units believed to be the only ones in the state. And now they're going to be restricted except in emergency situations. And those were used, those were quite popular. About 6,000 people voted uh, using one of the mobile units during the January runoff elections, uh, the the Senate runoffs. Um, We also see things like no excuse absentee voting going away, which would which would harm uh, these larger counties where that really helped reduce the lines. Um, uh, Dropbox locations would be greatly restricted. Uh, Fulton had more than 30 last year, Mm -hmm. and this bill would limit to one per every uh, 100,000 registered voters. So going down from, you know, 30 something to eight um, absentee ballot drop boxes. And there's also restrictions on where they can put those. Uh, Mm -hmm. They would have to be inside. They could only be open during business hours. Uh, so those which came in handy, especially during the pandemic, uh, would be greatly scaled back. And, you know, Rose, if I could just jump in here, sure. it, what we're seeing, you know, Emil mentioned there's another omnibus big package that passed the House last year, also focused on elections. We had the Senate one yesterday. Republicans are still trying to sort out what they actually want to do. That's very clear. As I said, they're not in agreement. There's a lot of different ideas and they've got till March 31st to try to figure it out. But right now, nobody seems to know exactly what's going to end up in law, which is um, I've heard the term headless horseman here on mm-hmm. this issue. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot to keep track of. Well, and this morning, if you were listening to NPR, you heard Gabe Sterling um, speaking with Morning Edition host. Uh, I think it was Scott uh, through his lens trying to explain and what the purpose of all these measures were about. We'll just leave it at that. Let's move on to another piece of legislation that advanced yesterday. That's a measure that would have created a cheap labor officer to oversee unemployment benefits. Question, isn't this Georgia Department of Labor Commissioner Mark Butler's job? Or 
<laughs> it's interesting. It, it It is his job, but there has been a lot of dissatisfaction with uh, the way that, that that department has been run in the last year. And of course, they have been overwhelmed, like a lot of other states, with unemployment claims because of the pandemic uh, and the economic uh, uncertainty and shutdown because of the pandemic. Um, and lawmakers have been very frustrated with a lack of what they call a lack of response from Mark Butler and from the Labor Department. So this bill uh, would have uh, completely uh, really taken a lot of the power away from Butler and created this separate position within the department. And there was a lot of question from lawmakers saying, um, you know, does this set a bad precedent that we're just going to take all this power away from uh, a, a position that's elected by the voters? Um, and so it was it was somewhat controversial, although it did have support, bipartisan support from a lot mm. of lawmakers uh, because of the frustration over uh, the, the backlog of unemployment claims. Well, if you just join us, I'm joined by WABE politics reporter reporters, Emil Moffitt and Emma Hurt. And we're getting a brief update on what's happening down at the Gold Dome because yesterday was crossover day. Now, here's a bill that uh passed unanimously had support on both sides and this is and i want some clarity here for one of you all for our listeners and whether or not we are repealing the state citizens arrest law or amending it um this comes following the shooting death of ahmaud arbery in brunswick last week what does this measure do yeah so it's a repeal and replace situation um and it replaces this vague law which allows any georgian to arrest another if they witness a crime or have immediate knowledge of a crime. It's very vague. Mm -hmm. And as you said, this is a law that was used to defend the men who killed, who are in jail for killing Ahmad Arbery right now for months. Um, and, and it replaces it with language that allows very limited instances of citizen detainment. Like if a shopkeeper witnesses someone um, steal something from their shop, for example, and it also prohibits any use of force. So it tries to make very clear the few times when this is okay and, and the terms mm -hmm. of that. And it did pass unanimously. It was really remarkable, the contrast between that very bipartisan kumbaya mm -hmm. on the House and this this rancor over voting in the Senate that was pretty bloody. So um, yeah, it was a big it was a big contrast. And this is a measure that Governor Brian Kemp has made a priority. And so mm -hmm. that unanimous vote is I think indicative of that, of the governor along with de Democratic leadership saying, all right, we need to do something on this. And Emma uh, or Emil, one of y'all can tackle this. This was another, this next measure I'm about to talk about, an example of Democrats and Republicans coming together. The House approved uh, a, a measure to create a sexual assault kit tracking system. Yeah, and that's that's something that's been been um, a bipartisan effort as well. That's been going on for a couple of years, trying to get this backlog of of these sexual assault kits taken care of, because sometimes that can back up, um, and and you have victims waiting for years and years to try to seek justice. And so that's been a, a bipartisan priority of a lot of lawmakers uh, at the Capitol, trying to make sure that that backlog um, is reduced and that 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 they have the resources. Uh, to try to do that and really spending some money and putting in legislation mm -hmm. that would streamline that process. Uh, one, one measure that did not advance, it was a proposal to raise the salary of lawmakers by nearly 70 percent. How much are they getting paid? Yeah. They're not getting paid enough, Emma? 
You know, this is a this is not an issue that cuts down partisan lines. It's kind of interesting. Um, and it failed. It was up for a vote in the Senate and and failed. Didn't come up in the House. Uh, you know, state lawmakers make seventeen thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Haven't, that hasn't changed in a long time. And um, some people think that it should. Um, but this bill would have also raised the pay for constitutional officers, public service commissioners, everybody. And um, more senators said, well, this is not a good look for us in a pandemic to be giving ourselves a pay raise. So it mm. failed. Wow. Um, are there any other measures that you think people are not paying as much attention to that did or didn't advance yesterday? And I'll start with you, Emma. I think the the bill that would give um, DACA students the equivalent of in-state tuition at most um, Georgia colleges and uh, technical colleges and, and universities, it, it did not get a vote. But the Republican sponsor of that bill, who's from Dalton, which, as we know, is 50 um, percent Latino, is going to try. And I think um, that's still something to watch, even if it didn't make it through. There's a lot of push um, among advocates for that bill. And it, while it's a tough, it's maybe a tougher issue politically, Republicans aren't unified on it. It does have bipartisan support as mm-hmm. well. So it has a chance. And, and what's the latest on the casinos and sports betting? What are we hearing about that, Emil? Yeah, we did not see the House bill on sports betting pass yesterday. But uh, last week, uh, two pieces of legislation that would legalize uh, sports gambling uh, did pass the Senate. Uh, One of those was a resolution that will call for a a ballot question on the 2022 ballot, which will Mm -hmm. let voters decide on sports betting. So we'll see how that goes when it comes over to the House side and see if it's passed there as well. But again, that would be 2022 on the ballot. And then if it's approved, it would go into effect with sports betting in 2023. And finally, a listener wants to know, what about the measure to defund the police or ban the defunding of police at local governments? What do we know about that? I believe that was, was that Houston Gaines measure? Yeah, that passed the passed the House, and I believe there was one that passed the Senate as well, a similar measure. So that's still alive. We'll have to see how that comes out in the end. But there has been legislation in both chambers um, uh, backed by Republicans uh, to try to prevent uh, cutting of, of police department budgets. And Emil, remind our listeners when that big day, signing die, when is that coming up? <laughs> the 31st, the last day of March will be <laughs> signing die. So I think uh, lawmakers uh, and the media are, are both looking forward to. to no, we're day. not. We're not looking forward <laughs> to that. <laughs> to the days after. There the you go, after. Emma. And finally, as we wrap up, Emma, what are you going to be following between now and signing die? Look, I mean, the voting is taking up all of the political oxygen right now. And so, as I said, Republicans are trying to sort out exactly what ends up um, in law. And so the question is, it probably ends up in a conference committee, which is what happens when the two sides can't agree, the two chambers. And so a couple of them get in a room and actually rewrite the law. And so that very well might be how this ends. Um, But that is what everyone's going to be watching. All right, Emil. Uh, There was an interesting debate yesterday uh, on a House bill about visitations to nursing homes, uh, long-term care facilities, and also to hospitals during a public health emergency. It's been pretty restricted and locked down, and that's led to a lot of very emotional circumstances where people don't have uh, the ability to to visit with their family members. Uh, This uh, bill that was passed yesterday uh, would allow very limited, uh, basically, power of attorney person to come in 
for an hour each day, the limited visitation. Supporters say that's the least we can do to help these people in this situation. Mm. But opponents of the measure said, you know, it really opens up other patients, other residents, and the staff to risks of infection if you have people coming in from the outside. So that was a very, a very emotional debate on the House floor that went on for about two hours yesterday, but ultimately did pass. And so many measures are still pending. I believe there's a street racing. Obviously, the one with emergency powers is a bill that relates to transgender uh, sports, um, which I, I believe, uh, I think in South Dakota, their legislature just passed something. Uh, so, but, a lot, but it didn't. It didn't get a vote yesterday. It did not get a vote. Wow. wow, so much to to, yeah. <laughs> to keep on top of. But it and, can still come back. They can come back to life. You yes, that's know. that's what we have found out. I will tell you, I I, I don't miss covering. The legislature, but I will tell you, one year I did cover the roadkill bill, <laughs> which <laughs> allowed folks, if you hit said animal, you could take it home. <laughs> I can't and, make and it go. fix the damage to your car. Right. Which is why I'm not a politics reporter. Into existence? Is that uh, what that is? That's why I'm not a politics That's a good reporter. One. Yeah. See, you all <laughs> much better at this than I am. WABE politics reporter Emma Hurt and Emil Moffitt. Thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. That roadkill bill, you know what? I think I might have filed that for NPR. That was a great man. Let me tell you something. Did anyone bring some roadkill in for you to taste? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Thank you both. Take Thanks care. for having us, Rose. All right. Enjoyed it. Get some rest. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Prior to the pandemic, we know food insecurity was already a major issue in our nation. And it's a quality of life issue that does not discriminate. Families, individuals struggling to keep food on the table and gain access to food while challenges that existed before the pandemic are now just being amplified. And according to Feeding America, child food insecurity, insecurity in Georgia due to the pandemic has increased, pay attention to this, from 16.1% of 2018 to 22% in 2020. And so the need continues. Now, thanks to a lot of money from the federal government, we're going to talk about what this means for so many Georgians. $11.9 million from the Georgia Division of, for the Georgia Division of Family and Children's Services. This will go to food banks in 159 Georgia counties and about 2,400 nonprofits. We're now going to find out just exactly how this will work. Joining me now, and she's always such a great guest, from the Georgia Food Bank Association, Dana Kraft. She's executive director of the Georgia Food Bank Association. Dana's always welcome. Good good to have you as always. Thanks. 
Thank you. It's great to be with you today. It's a conversation that we've had many times before, but we need to we need to keep having it. Um, for the folks that may not be aware, just how many members are in the Georgia Food Bank Association? So there are eight Feeding America food banks that serve all 159 counties in the state of Georgia, and seven of those food banks are active with the Georgia Food Bank Association. And they all eight share this grant money that is coming through the Department of Family and Children's Services. So someone's saying, well, $11.11 million, uh, every little bit helps, but does that begin to even, I guess, address what, how much more is needed, I guess? Right. So the, the, this, this, these funds are targeted. Mm-hmm. They are for a, 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 a program that the food banks created in order to provide supplemental nutrition for families with children who mm-hmm. are at risk of homelessness or mm-hmm. who are TANF eligible. And so in, in some of the food bank regions, they're going to use the, these funds for household commodities because they've got household distribution programs. In the southern part of the state, several of the food banks use this for weekend food for kids who uh, are um, coming in on Mondays uh, and the counselors are reporting that they're coming in hungry. And so it, it provides weekend food for them to go home. So it's used in a variety of different programs. It it essentially doubles what the food banks normally get. They normally share a, um, a $7.5 million grant mm-hmm. for this program. It purchases protein, fruits, and vegetables. Uh, you know, Rose, you know that the food banks have what they have, right? Mm-hmm. And what gets donated is what gets donated. And that's not always uh, the, all the right elements to make a meal, mm-hmm. right? And so the these foods supplement what the food banks have coming in from other sources, and including USDA federal sources, in order to provide a more complete meal to families with children. Um, on the scale, though, I, I will tell you that the, the food banks in Georgia you know, have been responding to an unrelenting 50% increase in mm-hmm. demand, and they've done that with additional USDA commodities that have come through the Families First and the CARES Act and trade mitigation commodities that were purchased in order to sort of mitigate the, um, the tariff issues with China. Mm-hmm. And, and two of those programs uh, came, came to an end uh, in, in December 31st. And knowing that we were facing what we call a commodities cliff and looking at a 50% increase in demand and a 50% drop in our food supply, um, I approached Director Rollins and his deputy, John Anderson, and said, what can we do? And they, they developed this idea to provide supplemental funding for the GNAP program. So we, we knew we had an additional supply of food coming in for families with children, which is absolutely critical. Um, since then, the federal government did provide some additional USDA commodities mm-hmm. in the December Relief Act. Um, there are no USDA commodities for, for the food banks specifically in uh, the Relief Act being debated today, but there is money to help suppliers uh, who are, have food stranded in the you know, restaurant mm-hmm. suppliers who, who still don't have their supply chain straightened out. And so we are working with USDA to get as much of that food moving through the th- food bank network as possible. Um, so, I, I mean, I can't, I can't say enough about 
our partnership with uh, Department of Family and Children's Services and Director Rollins mm-hmm. and John Anderson and the governor who recognized this need and provided this supplemental funding. And I want to peel back a number that you mentioned. You said at least there, there was a 50 percent increase in demand for food. But folks should know of that. You're talking about 40 percent of folks who were seeking emergency food assistance for the first time. And I think that lends itself to tell you just how devastating the pandemic has been on on households in terms of folks who lost, maybe lost their jobs or you know needed to stay home with the kids. When you hear that number, and what do you want to stress to folks about how folks are living or trying to make it here in Georgia? Well, I think it's important for people to understand that there are many families that are on the edge. Uh, or really not making it right mm-hmm. now. And I am paying particular attention to children because there are a lot of kids who are not in school. You know, Even pre-COVID, 60% of kids in public school were eligible for free and reduced price lunch. So with school and the you know, nutrition directors have been heroic in their attempts to try to do grab and go lunch for kids in remote learning and you know, have a delivery, put the lunches on the school buses and run the school bus route. They've just done a tremendous uh, effort to try to do it, but we are are still seeing families that are falling through the cracks, children falling through the cracks, families that are suffering, and um, we still have National Guard on site. Um, Mm. Since the first week of April, the food banks have had initially 150 members of the National Guard at nine warehouse locations. At this point, we still have 120 working at seven warehouse locations and about a dozen um, uh, really important pantries that are operating in the metro Atlanta area. So, uh, you know, if you're at home and you're doing okay, <laughs> that's great. But mm-hmm. I, we, we want people to understand that, that people through all walks of life have been impacted by these job losses. Um, that child food insecurity increase number, the 38% that you noted earlier, you know, that a lot of those, um, a lot of those kids live in the metro Atlanta area mm-hmm. uh, where restaurant closures, hotel and convention business closures have impacted uh, people who, who uh, work hourly, low-wage jobs, um, and in the Savannah area where the convention and tourism business has just, you know, been impacted. You know, Danny, you mentioned that kids, educators were reporting kids coming to school, indicating maybe they were hungry, they hadn't had anything to eat possibly over the weekend. And I know that that is so important for food banks now to be able to help students, households with students, so they can have food for the weekend. A lot of people may not realize that that's, a, that that's actually been taking place, but it has. I remember doing a, a, a profile with the YMCA where they had, you know, bags of food for the kids to take with them. I went in on a Friday to profile and they had bags for the kids to take home for the weekend. A lot of folks don't realize that that is something that's actually happening, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the nation. Right. And over the last year, you know, the food banks have been partnering with the school nutrition directors in order to do household distributions at the same locations where they're, you know, doing grab and go lunch. Um, in order to help supplement what's going home with the families. Um, there have been a lot of great partnerships uh, that are happening, school-based pantries mm-hmm. that have opened in order to make food available uh, to families who need it. And 
you know, it would be terrible if there was a family out there who needed help, who didn't feel like that they could come and ask for a help or, or, or who were, um, who, who didn't want to ask for help, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, our network is here for everyone. And those 40% of the people who've never sought help before, you know, they are having to figure out how to navigate social services for the first time. And that in itself can be challenging. Dana, if folks want to know more about uh, the Georgia Food Bank Association and how, if there is a, a community or a household that they feel is, is eligible for this, where can they get the information? Well, uh, georgiafoodbankassociation.org has a tab where they could find the food bank that serves their area. Mm-hmm. In, in WABE's um, listening area, the Atlanta Community Food Bank is the food bank that serves, and they have a great te- texting system mm-hmm. where people could text um, uh, uh, to a number and get back the three closest pantries. And that information is available at their website, um, acfb.org. And we'll have a link to all of those as well. Dana Kraft, the executive director for the Georgia Food Bank Association. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for work you all are doing. You're going to help so many people in Georgia who need it right now. Thank you so much, Rose. Appreciate the attention that WABE has been giving to this issue for many months. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Last year was tough for nearly every industry due to the pandemic, but here's one that fared pretty well. Now, developers did hold off on new projects, but in some states like Georgia, the construction industry didn't take it too bad. And now just look around. There's plenty of construction still taking place. I know because it's all over my neighborhood, residential and commercial. Here's a question. Who's working in the construction industry? It's estimated about 1.1 million women were employed in various jobs of the construction industry. That latest data being reported at the end of 2018. But that only equates to about 9.9 percent of the construction industry in the U.S. Now, a workforce gap that could use an infusion of more women and especially women of color is the construction industry. Well, today, the Construction Education Foundation of Georgia is marking Women's History Month with a special Facebook Live event focused on opportunities for women in construction and the skilled trades. And joining me now to talk more about this and other initiatives to increase the pipeline of women in construction, Vita White, Associate Director of Student Success for Construction Education Foundation of Georgia, and Brett Henderson, past president of the National Association of Women in Construction in here in Atlanta. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you for having us. Let's Thank begin you. here. Thank you yeah, absolutely. Uh, Vita, I'll begin with you. Overall, you heard me talk about that the construction industry apparently didn't take a hard hit, but how would you assess how the how would you assess how the uh, construction industry has been faring in the pandemic? Well, we didn't take a hit at all, seems like, um, during the pandemic. We were down for maybe a couple of weeks just to figure things out. But once we um, got back on track, we were able to um, have four training classes um, for construction industry for men and women throughout the metropolitan Atlanta area. And we graduated those four classes and everybody got a job and they're working now. When you say four classes, were this instru- face-to-face instruction? Uh, I imagine it had to be, right? 
yes, face to face. Um, we figured it out. We figured out how to um, have the classes safely with um, social distancing in the classroom and, mm-hmm. you know, adhering to all of the guidelines of CDC. And it worked out perfectly for us. Brett, what about you? How would you assess how the construction industries has fared in the pandemic? Yeah, so we were really, it it was critical that we were deemed essential employees. Mm -hmm. And that really provided us with the opportunity to kind of rework um, this new normal of how we conducted business and how we went to work every day. And like Veda said, we kind of paused for a second. There was about a four to six week period where things slowed down a bit. Um, Jobs weren't being bid quite as um, regularly, but then things picked back up, back up. And when the governor reopened the state June 1st, we all picked back up as well. And we've been thriving um, since. It's, of course, been down a little bit year over year, which is mm-hmm. to be expected in pandemic year. But the opportunity that still exists for um, women and for folks from all types of backgrounds is just so vast because we do have this labor gap, this labor shortage, where if you want to work tomorrow, it's possible. This industry has so many possibilities mm-hmm. for those who um, are, are ready to get involved. Right. Veda, the statistic I gave coming into the segment that less than per, less than 10% of women make up the overall construction industry are we, should we assume that there are also some barriers that still exist for women? Is that, is that a fair assessment? Mm. Fair or unfair barriers, mind you. Well, since August of last year, um, I will say that we had close to 40% of our students who are women mm-hmm. in construction. So I am seeing a large amount of, of, of us in the industry and that's um, due to um, women. We tend to pay attention more so to details on these construction um, jobs that we put them on. And they're wanting to get out there and build as well, especially now that technology is a part of how we build. That that makes it more sophisticated, I now, think. Now, Veda, I'm gonna, I, I, I know the fellas out there just heard you say, well, what, what do you mean that women tend to pay more detail on the construction? I want you to take that further because you said it. So now you got to own it. Well, you know, it's, it's when, you know, when we give, when we're given a task to do, we make sure that it's perfect in the way that it's supposed to be. And I'm not saying my guys are not doing it. They are, but we just do it a little bit better. Ooh, Veda, I'm going to send the emails to you. Uh, Brett, what do you want to add? So are we to assume that there still aren't some perceptions or stereotypes about what type of construction jobs women can and cannot do? No, that's that's an excellent question. And I just came off of a Facebook Live event with Sefka where Kayleen and I just discussed this. Mm -hmm. Um, Women entered the workforce in the 60s. So we are still understanding what um, our skill sets, what we offer in certain areas. So the cool thing about the evolution of us being involved in the industry is that now you're seeing us in more diverse roles, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we're in the C-suite level or we're out in the field, we're in the trenches laying pipe. You see all aspects of the field and the industry. And that's what's really, really cool about where we've where we started and mm-hmm. where we will continue to make those strides, but it is up to um, 
the, the ladies who are currently involved now to continue to mentor and support and wrap our hands around those that are coming into the industry and then share our best practices with um, those are already who are already involved. Just had the same conversation. We talked about women in the engineering fields. And, and Veda, this is where I know also where you come in, and it's so important when we talk about increasing that pipeline, particularly with women and women of color for this industry, what are you all doing? We are we are out there recruiting and going to different events. We get a lot of um, questions about women in construction mm-hmm. and and not just from women of color, but all women. You know, every I think it's just an industry now that's more welcoming, I guess you would say, um, to, to women because of the different positions and the different jobs and, and uh, career opportunities, like Rich has stated before, um, across the board, whether it's in the field, in the office, whether it's architect or engineering, we do it all. We can do it all. And we are doing it all. Let me ask you all uh, this question. Is there a specific sector within the industry that you all find that more women are are entering or are seeking or inquiring about uh, being able to to have more skills or or a work, a skill set for that particular area? Brett? So that's what's so interesting about the industry is that everyone has a place. Mm-hmm. Every single skill set that women or anyone has to offer, there's the perfect spot for you. And that's what, what is so neat about the National Association of Women in Construction is that our members consist of field employees, mm-hmm. lawyers architects, sales, project developers. There are all kinds of opportunities within the industry. And the one thing that ties us all together is our passion for construction. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this then, and, and Veda, you can answer this, and you too, Brett. Do you have to drive that message home when people talk? Because when we say construction, maybe folks automatically think about being there on the on the work site you know, with the two by fours and all the equipment and the the cranes and all that. But what you just described, Brett, is a a whole lot of different jobs within that. Do you have to drive that home that when we talk about construction, y'all, we're not just talking about being at a work site. We're talking about all sorts of positions. We totally have to drive that home. And one of is an outreach to the elementary age students and it's called block kids and what we want to do is introduce students to the viable and the very lucrative industry called construction and get their heads thinking about which path they want to pursue but that consists within the world of construction. Veda what do you want to add to that about letting folks know that there are so many different jobs within the construction industry? So when I'm out and we're having career fairs or I get phone calls and I, the first question I get is, I'm a woman, can I do this? And my answer is, of course you can. You know, there are so many different jobs in this industry. It's not as dirty as it used to be because of the technology and how we build. And that that's pretty much how we sell it to uh, women. It's not a, a hard sale because mm-hmm. I think a lot of them have it in their mindset that that is something that they want to do. I've had women in our training program who would rather be out in the field working every day. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, some others that would like to not so much be in the field, but 
to work in the office or do some other things in the industry. Well, and what about ownership? What about, are you seeing an increase in women saying, look, I want to get into this industry because one day I want to have my own construction firm, my own construction I company. I hear it all the time. And it just excites my spirit when I hear that. I see the it's- smile. I see the smile, Veda. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, there's no glass ceiling in this industry. It's for men and women. So there's enough work for everybody to do. Well, let's talk money. Uh, Brett, <laughs> someone is saying, OK, you know, um, is the sky's the limit in terms of how, how, how much income a person can have in one of these in, uh, jobs here? No, I'm so glad you brought this question up because the the answer is that in the construction industry, the gender pay gap is 99.1%. I saw that. Yes, compared to our male counterparts. So not only are we paid for the quality of work that we're doing, but you have the ability to almost set your own schedule, especially women in trades. Mm -hmm. If you want to work longer hours or pick up another um, project, you can just continue to do that. So you almost have that both benefits of, of the high paid salary, but then also being able to set your own schedule. So it's just a really um, affordable opportunity for women, especially those with children mm-hmm. um, and be a single mother. This, this industry provides us with the ability to take care of ourselves and um, our homes. So what kind of initiatives other than I know Veda talked about, you know, being able to go to events and, and being able to talk to to folks. But how else are you all trying to reach people, women, and let them know about the opportunities and, and not just opportunities, but maybe those who want training or education? How are you reaching these folks? You. Oh, coming on Closer Look? Okay. <laughs> yes. And the media. I mean, you know, we, we, we have to get the word out there to two women that this industry is clearly for anyone who wants it no matter what it is you want to do you know what really makes me happy um when we have graduations and most of our students i think two classes ago we had more women in the class than men mm-hmm. and a lot of the ladies were saying to me i'll be back but when i come back i'm coming back to hire from the program and that really excites me and makes me feel really good do you all keep track of, of, of those who graduate? And do you all help them with job placement as well, Veda? Yes. So our training program is 20 days. It's boot camp style for a reason because the, the information and the training that's received during the 20 days normally would take a person three to six months to get that training. So we're in it and you have to be there every day. So the first first 18 days is training and hands-on um, activities and they get to build a project in the program. Mm-hmm. But on the 19th day is when employers come into our training class to interview with our students. But here's the really cool thing about how we do our hiring fair. The students get to interview the employers as well. So the students rank the employer and the employer ranks the student. At the end of the day, we match all the one-to-ones to two-to-two. So it's pretty much like speed dating. They come in and interview with all the students in the class. And Veda, does the class cost? Is there uh, something that can help folks if there is a cost involved here? It is absolutely free. Really? Yes. So I can start- come in and take this class for, you said, 20 days. 
that normally would be three to six months. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come watch. You, you, you think I'm going to show but, up? That's a process. You have to go through the work. So it's a process, but um, it, it is free and it's a holistic approach. I mean, it's not just giving training or providing sure. training for our students, but we try to help the, the student in a holistic way to get them involved with the industry because this is a very unique industry. Um, for all who are in it, and it's it's different from most of the industry, so we train them on that. As we wrap up, Veda and Brett, when you think back to how you all got involved in this industry, what's been the takeaway for you? Or the one thing that you might have liked to have garnered, or maybe didn't, but now you see it happening. Brett, I'll start with you. So I'm really encouraged to see the inclusivity and the diversity that continues to make up our demographic in the field. When I first got started, I was one in um, my district, in my area. And so I was a bit of a lone wolf. Mm -hmm. Now, when I at the makeup um, here in Atlanta, we've got multiple ladies. So it's, it's encouraging and it just reminds me how important mentorship is and how important it is to connect and um, make those long lasting relationships so that we can continue to um, create the direction of the industry to continue to evolve it into an inclusive and diverse uh, makeup. Veda, what about you? How has this changed in terms of women being able to to get the information and the training they need from when you first got involved? When I first got involved, I was really new to this industry back in 2014. But once I got into it and I started to see other women in this industry doing everything, you know, I was very hopeful and I started to share that information, share what I see every day with other other women. Veda White, Associate Director, Student Success for Construction Education Foundation of Georgia, and Brett Henderson, past president of the National Association of Women in Construction here in Atlanta. Thank you both for taking the time. Good information. We'll have links to our website for anyone out there who wants to be involved. Thank you so much. Good information. Good conversation. Our pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's show, you can find the entire program online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And we'll have links to all the segments that we talked about today. I've gotten some emails from you all wanting more information about the segments we had today. Well, guess what? We'll have it on our website. And as always, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it will be there. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 